0: Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Through him. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, um, I certainly am not an adequate spokesperson for your word. It's so true, so profound, so rich. Like Moses, I feel like I stammer. But Lord, you're able to use Moses, you're able to use little children you're able to use me, your child. And I pray that you would help me to be clear today and to be faithful to your word. May your people compare carefully and diligently what I have to say, as the Bereans did with the Apostle Paul, with what you have spoken and written in your word. And, oh, our God, I pray that you would conform us to Christ, and that you would do some of that even this morning, do business With our souls, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As a young boy, I remember exploring a lot, not only outside, nice weather days, but especially in areas we uh, were just vacationing too, but but also sometimes inside houses that were not familiar to me. And if we had permission, and sometimes regrettably when we didn't, we would find our ways up and, and explore the rooms. Uh, one house I remember finding, stairs up to an attic. Doors were closed. I probably should not have gotten up there. I did. I went up and... Uh, I looked around, and there were wonderful things, old things, very old things, I thought as a boy of maybe seven or eight. Uh, One of them, however, was a large uh, um, flat object surrounded by a frame, a wooden frame, uh, scarcely visible through the dust, and it had a stand, and it seemed to tilt one way or the other on hinges in the center. And I began to realize as I tried to dust it off, it was a very old full-length mirror. Of the kind that are not generally made today, full-length mirror, and um, we could hardly see anything in the mirror because it was all covered with dust and so. And so we began to wipe the dust off, and lo, we could begin to see something of our own reflections in it, and and that which was behind us. And so we rubbed a little harder and began to get clear, but in other places it smudged, (laughs) and so it wasn't a very perfect reflection. But the more we worked at it, the better the reflection was. You know, our lives are like that. Did you know that? God has called us. First of all, he's made us to bear his image. Genesis chapter 1. His image and his likeness. We're fallen. We're sinners. How can we do that? Ah, well, that's what he does in our hearts. He calls us to himself through Christ, as we've just heard Tim Falcons describe, and as we'll talk about more in just a minute. But he calls us to himself, and having called us to himself, he then conforms us to himself. And that's a process, an ongoing process. The moment that we come to Christ, we are clothed with his righteousness in God's eyes. That's called justification. We're declared, we are declared not guilty before the bar of God because of what Christ has done. And having been declared not guilty, we are received into the family and have all the the privileges of being sons and daughters of God, the King. But that doesn't mean that then we're free to live our lives just as we always did in all of our bad habits and in all of our selfish and sinful um, desires. No, 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 no. God at that point begins a work in us that makes true what he has said. You see, God has declared us To be righteous by the bar of his court. And now he begins to constitute us as actually righteous and seen as such before the world. Well, not perfectly. Our lives are like that mirror, you see. And the longer the Holy Spirit works in our lives, the more like Jesus we are. But also, ironically, the more we are aware of those places (laughs) where we aren't good reflections. And so our conscience becomes ever more sensitive, the holier, that is, the more like Christ we become. It's one of the ironies of the Christian life, and it's not finished until God calls us home or comes in the clouds of glory at the close of history. As believers, you see, we're called to be reflections of God and the, of Christ in the world. And as believers in Christ, we may do so in the first place because he has given us a new identity. The immediately preceding context in this chapter of these verses, uh, verse 3, we read, For you died. Get that? You died, past tense. No more. No more, Sam Larson. Put your own name there. No more, you. You, as you were, died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Elsewhere, Paul would say, for I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live to the praise of the glory of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. In verse 11, Paul goes on to say, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You see, if we're in Christ, it doesn't matter what your political affiliation is, you have a higher allegiance. Doesn't matter what your nationality is, you have a higher allegiance. It doesn't matter what your uh, ethnic background or, or uh, uh, origin is. White, black, Hispanic, Asian. You have a new identity in Christ that transcends all those. It doesn't matter what your socioeconomic or educational background is. What your cultural background is. All of those things important in their own place. But those things Pale by comparison to the allegiance and new identity we have together with one another in Christ. I remember listening to uh, Dr. Paul Long Sr. as he discussed with me in conversation at one point of of, uh, his work in what was then after World War II, the Belgian Congo And as they labored with the gospel and brought it to uh, one village after another, one tribe after another, these were tribes that hated and killed each other. They had tribal warfare, still a lot of tribal warfare in in, uh, um, Africa, and not only in Africa, but other places in the world, believe me. Uh, But here were people that Paul and his wife Mary long labored among for years. And the interesting thing is, is some of the people they shared the gospel with were converted. They became followers of Jesus Christ. And then they did the unthinkable. They took that message to the villages of their enemy tribes. And then some were converted by those messengers who brought the gospel. And they, in turn, took the gospel to yet other Tribes that previously had made war with them. Now, those who had not been converted were in the majority. Make no mistake, the Christians were a small minority. They were countercultural. And their fellow tribespeople referred to them as a third tribe. That's how they were called. Oh, he's a third tribesman or third tribeswoman. Oh, they belong to the third tribe. It's not our tribe. It's not us. But it's not our enemy tribe either. It's strange. It's something we've never seen before. It's a third tribe, an all tribe. (laughs) It included white and African of any other tribe. It included men and women together regardless of their status socially. It was different. A community that was forged around an allegiance to Jesus so strong they were willing to risk death by walking into the villages of their sworn enemy tribes. How is it with us, Christ community? Do we love each other that way? Do we care enough about our community? Those that don't know Jesus, that we're willing to suffer a sneer to bear the reproach of our God. The reproaches of those that fell upon you have fallen upon me, said the psalmist. And the disciples recognized that as fulfilled in Christ. See, we do have a new identity. But our identity stems from three things mentioned here. Other things we could add. But three that are mentioned here. First, that God has chosen us. Verse 12. Chosen. The same word as Elect. And the notion of chosen and all that it means is found in Ephesians chapter 1, among other places in verses 4 through 6. And There we read, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. It's no accident you're here this morning if you love Jesus. That didn't start from you. God put that in your heart. And you can be sure that the one who began a good work, and you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. His love never gives up. It never runs out on you. God has chosen us, and he also dearly loves us. In verse 12, he says, you're a dearly loved. It's the same terminology, the same root word, that in Mark 1, 11, is used by God the Father as he speaks to his son, as he steps out from the midst of the Jordan, having just been baptized, and the voice from heaven says, you, speaking to the Son, you are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. God says, you are loved. How loved? Like that. How can it be? Because you're in him. And the love for the son, of the father for the son and the son for the father embraces us with a love that will never let us go. And that is an encouraging thing in a world that seems disintegrating round about us. He's chosen us. He's dearly loved us. And he has called us. Verse 15. Called Genesis 1 verse 3 we read that God uh, said let there be light and there was light. You see when the king speaks it's done. He called it into being and in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6 we read for God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Uh, I can't pass this verse without noting that the word knowledge here is not a a Colossian pagan notion that he's writing to some there who have a pagan pre-Gnostic notion of knowledge that is um, somehow arcane and, and and abstract and separated from what anybody else would know. No, 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 no. This isn't simply cognitive awareness of certain data. That's not the word here. The knowledge means the experiential knowledge, an understanding that comes from life with and in God. Paul can say, speak about this mystery, he says, which is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He's chosen us. He's dearly loved us. He's called us. How can we not have a new identity, an identity that is forged and welded with him and therefore with one another? And so secondly, as believers in Christ, we're intended to mirror him in our character and relationships. Verse 12 says we're called to be holy. I don't know about you, but when I grew up, that word holy meant something that was sort of, you know, out there and different and weird, strange, abstract. Yeah, it was religious and spooky and mystical and all of that. That's not what it means. That's what I thought it meant. It's what a lot of people I think think it means. And I was a preacher's kid, I should have known better. Holy means something else. Holy is referred to God. Holy is referred to those things that are uh, associated with God that God has therefore declared holy or rather, he's declared holy and therefore they're associated with God. That's a better way of putting it. And so the tabernacle's holy. The bread of the presence is holy. And believers are holy. And the community of believers is holy. Holy refers to the presence of God ultimately shown in his glory cloud that is so refulgent in splendor that it cannot be penetrated. It's said that the high priest in Old Testament days wore a cord, a rope tied to himself. And when he went in through the curtain to the Holy of Holies, if he were struck dead, no one could go in and help him. They'd have to pull him out. Well, why were they afraid of that, Ah, huh? Because, you see, he was entering the presence of God, and God had said on Mount Sinai to Moses, there shall no man living see me, see my face, literally, and live. So what does God do? He puts Moses in the cleft of the rock, covers him with his hand. Picture of Christ, who is the rock, who gives the water of life, but also is the rock who gives us refuge. And that was understood, that's another sermon by, it's understood by Elijah when he comes back to that mountain to tender his resignation and finds God has other plans. God has called us. He doesn't let us go. As believers, we're intended to mirror him. In our character and relationships, that means that as God is not like our culture in certain ways. Culture is a good thing. It reflects something of the image of God, our creator. But in the places, the many places in which our culture is unlike God, we as his people are to be unlike the culture and like God instead. We're to be countercultural. That carries a cost. It does, you know. And I've seen a change in my lifetime. From lip service to the uh, holiness of God and the moral standards of his word. From lip service to sneers and indifference to outright um, hostility. And you can see it. In many places in our culture, it's emerging. It's not pervasive with everyone or everything, but it's increasingly strong. The wind is rising. What happens when the currents become a torrent? We may yet, in our lifetimes, face the kind of persecution that Christians in this country have for 400 years not had to face. And that, my friends, is an, an- anomaly in the history of the church through 20 centuries and around the world. And we take it for granted. We may face that. But remember, Isaiah wrote, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. Because he is Emmanuel. God with us. And he will never leave or forsake us. Recently, an African archbishop made headlines by declaring, in effect, that he would not want to spend eternity with a God who actually did what he said about judging sin. Our culture seems intent upon closing the gap between fallen humanity and God, not so much by calling men to higher standards of living, but by bringing our so-called God down to our own level thereby seeking to justify our own lifestyles and failures instead of holding our lives under the searchlight of God's word. Oh, how different is the God of the Bible who calls himself a consuming fire and whose holiness presents a barrier utterly insurmountable to fallen humanity except and only except through his own gracious bridge. Who's that? The day after his baptism, John saw Jesus coming to him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Have you come to understand you need that bridge? That without him you cannot be reconciled to a holy God. You stand yourself under the righteous judgment of such a God and there is none righteous, no, not one. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we're called to repent, turn from our sins to the Lord. You can't do the one without the other. And say, Lord, I acknowledge I need your son not to help me be saved, but to be my savior. There's a difference. And then, Lord, may my life show your lordship that my grateful heart may live out a life that mirrors my Savior. Well, we're then to be clothed with the character of Christ expressed in our relationship. Look at verse 12. <clears throat> there are five traits here, <clears> or <throat> character, uh, <clears throat> character traits. Compassion, says Paul. What is compassion? was well, something you feel inside, but but nobody can tell it's there unless... <laughs> There's an occasion for you to express it. Then it can be seen. That's the point. That it's not just done perfunctorily. There are those who give to charity and they really don't care about those they're giving. But they give for their own sake or just to to, uh, get the uh, person who's asking for help off their back. Uh, But that's not what compassion is. Compassion says... I really care. I feel with you about it. I want to do something, whatever I can. We may not be able to do everything for everyone. We can't. Only God is sufficient, all sufficient. But there will be times when we can do things, do we? Especially in the body of Christ. Kindness, where we wish the best for other people. We genuinely hope for it and we rejoice when we see good things happening to other people especially but brothers and sisters in Christ. Humility, oh, this is one that is so misunderstood. Uh, the word is translated by some, um, it's probably as meekness. And uh, our, our culture really massacres the meaning, of biblical meaning of meekness. I mean, what do you think meekness? They massacre it as badly as holy. I'm thinking what holy is, and I didn't understand it holy when I grew up. Oh, I didn't understand meekness either. I thought it meant doormat, you know. Milk toast. Meek. Somebody who doesn't stand up for anything. Meek. That's not the biblical meek. Not at all. Jesus was meek. We're told that. You know what he did? Clears the temple. How'd he do that? Makes a scourge out of cords (laughs) and goes through the temples cracking that thing, I'm sure, and Overturning the tables with money changers, driving out the cattle uh, and uh, f- uh, sheep and, and goats that were there. Uh, they should, selling them wasn't so much bad, except they were doing it dishonestly. Uh, the Mount, they were defective animals and they were charging an inordinate price for them. So they were thieves in the first place, but they were in the court of the Gentiles, the only part of the temple the Gentiles could come that far. And here the Psalms of Zion sung the gospel, as it were, in its Hebrew garb. And see the sacrifices that pictured the Lamb of God, what he was going to come to do. They could come that close and know they were being pushed out because Gentiles didn't count. Jesus turned them out. And the disciples remembered the verse, zeal for your house has consumed me. We'd say, eat me up, but the original language says, "eating me down. <laughs> That's a different way of expressing it. Consumed him. Zeal. Meek Jesus. He could withstand the accusations of the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, teachers of the law, who, those who wanted to twist the law for their own advantage and make, take advantage of widows and the orphans. And they did. Jesus almost, it looks like he's picking confrontations with them in order to bring out clearly on behalf of those who are being suppressed and oppressed, to clearly bring out the meaning of Sabbath. Is it wrong to do good on the Sabbath? They wouldn't answer him. Jesus was angry. It's one of three times we're told he's angry. That's another sermon. Bottom line is, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is not the Jesus of the New Testament. In fact, in Numbers chapter 12, we read about Moses. And at one point, Miriam and, and Aaron, who were anointed by God to, to lead God's people as high priest, and, and <clears throat> Miriam also um, led the women in some, some songs of praise. And so, they're his older siblings, they come to, come to him and say, you shouldn't be taking so much on yourself. We are equal with you and have equal vote. Vote. And then what we read is this. He falls face down before the congregation, before Miriam and Aaron, before the Lord. And then we read this. Now Moses was more meek than any man on the face of the earth. That's quite a statement. Now, do you know who wrote that? Moses. You see a bit of what sounds like irony? Only because we misunderstand the word meek. Some would say, oh, he couldn't have written that. Somebody later had to put that in because if he were really meek, he wouldn't say that. And that's nonsense. See, humility, true humility, is neither, on the one hand, taking credit for what God has done, that's pride nor denying that God has done anything in us of significance. That's false humility. Both deny God his glory. True humility says, Lord, I am what I am because you made me. My sins are mine, but your goodness is is displayed, and it's to your credit, not mine. And I acknowledge you've helped me grow in these ways, and I need you to work in my life further so that I may grow in these ways. And the way that I've grown, I can't take credit for. it. yours. That's humility. It's humility. And we're to cultivate that in our relationship with each other. Gentleness. And not being rough with each other. Being sensitive. Patience. That's related to being long-suffering. That we understand the difference between compromise and patience. You know, there's a difference. Compromise, say, oh, well, that principle doesn't really matter. I'll give it away. Patience says it matters a lot, so much, I'm willing to wait for it and keep working for it. There's a big difference. All of these five things, you notice, none of them can be cultivated in a hermitage by a solitary monk. (laughs) Nope. They all presume that we are a people together that we're a family, a church family. And Paul's writing this to a church he may never have been to, certainly didn't plant himself personally. You know, we're to express especially love, which supremely cements our unity to Christ, verse 14 tells us. Over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And that love, you see, brings us in verse, prior verse 13 to forgiveness. Bear with each other, we're told, and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forbearance and forgiveness, you see, are grounded in Christ's own treatment of us, and I don't care who you are this morning and how much you've been hurt by somebody. And maybe your pain is legitimate. And you did no part of it to deserve it. Although most of the time when I feel pain, I'm at least partly to fault and often mostly. But maybe you're not. Maybe you're way more sanctified than I am and all the pain you've ever felt has been totally the other person's fault. Even if that were true. (laughs) Even if that were true. It's tiny compared to the pain you have caused Jesus and that he bore on Calvary. The way you've grieved the Father's great heart that caused him to have to put the Lamb of God to a death through which no other has ever had to pass. Because if you want to see hell on earth, it's only one place. It's the six hours and especially the three hours of darkness on the cross wherein Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You have grieved Jesus far more than anyone could possibly have ever grieved you. And he forgives you. He loves you. He stays on the cross when he could have come down at any moment. The nails could not have held him with ten legions of angels at his back. And one would have been enough. He stayed on it. Because he loved you. If you're his child. He loved you by name. Until he could say. "Tellest tell thy. It is finished. How much more. Should we be forgiving toward each other. I'm. Uh, I'm just humbled when I think. Of how much. He forgives. And how. How often my first instinct is not to. Thirdly, as believers in Christ, our behavior toward one another will be a reflection of gratitude to God. Verse 15, Paul says, and be thankful. Verse 16, he says, with gratitude in your hearts to God. And then in verse 17, he says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, our thankfulness is to show. It's to show because, well, that's part of the peace that God gives is a peace of gratitude. We need to cultivate, as it's it sometimes said, an attitude of gratitude. And that will show itself not only with peace with God, but with each other. The peace of Christ, you see, is to rule in our hearts. Verses 19 and 20, we, we read that. Uh, In chapter, I'm sorry, chapter 1 of this epistle, verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Again, a few verses later, verse 24 now I rejoice in what, uh, what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. You hear that? The body is of Christ is the church. I said, well, wait a minute. What does Paul say there? He filled up what was lacking. Didn't Jesus say it was finished? <laughs> yes, and it was. But you see, Paul understood something. He was persecuting the body of Christ. And Christ appeared to him and said, Saul, Saul, the name was Saul back then. Why are you persecuting me? See, the church, to persecute the church, to disrupt the church, is to give pain to the Savior who is its head. And, and the church is his body. And... Paul understood then that when Christ has done what he's done on the cross, he accomplished it, and now what remains is for it to be worked out in the lives of those whom he has redeemed once for all on the cross. That's filling up the measure of the sufferings of Christ. And that's why Christ could say, you're persecuting me, Paul, Saul. You're persecuting me. The sufferings of his people are his sufferings, and that was after the cross and resurrection. So, brothers and sisters, we need to understand that we too have to cultivate a peace amidst the storm that recognizes our unity in the body of Christ. We can't have unity without peace. And finally, the songs of grateful praise to God are to mark our gatherings, verse 16. And I love this verse, Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. Now, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs—the original language here is the same, uh, are the same words that are used for the three divisions of the book of Psalms. In the Greek translation of the Hebrew, the Septuagint, which was often quoted by Jesus and the Apostles. But it, these terms are also used in other places in the New Testament for other kinds of singing. So it doesn't mean that we're only to sing the Psalms, although we certainly may do so and do in Christ's community. But the point is that as we sing, our songs are to be biblically grounded We're to teach and admonish each other. Did you realize you're doing that when you sing? Not only yourself, there's the words of the one. We're speaking to ourselves, oh, my soul. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. But also, we admonish each other. We call out to the people of God to join us in reverent praise. Friends, what characterizes our worship at Christ's community? Do we come to worship primarily for our own entertainment and recreation? Do we perhaps think that God is somehow honored to have the opportunity to have an audience with us rather than we being honored that he would invite us to have an audience with him? If you reflect upon the songs we sing in our worship, I hope you'll notice, I believe you'll notice that they are generally centered upon God and what He has done and are filled with thanksgiving and praise to Him and are biblically based in what they teach. Why? Why is that important? Because the more we focus upon our great and gracious God, the less we'll fixate upon ourselves and our selfish agendas, too often selfish. And the more we will see others through His eyes, And with his heart. And we will grow together. As a true church family. And as a testimony to him. Before our city. Well pleasing in his eyes. Let's pray.